question this morning for us as we begin, what is the most lasting and endearing metaphor for God that is used in the Bible? If you know where we're going this morning, you know the answer, right? Uh, the correct answer, of course, is a shepherd or the shepherd. To this point, Psalm 23.1 is likely the most memorized or most memorable verse in all of the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think maybe John 3.16 and, and Psalm 23.1 are maybe those two most important and most memorable verses in the Bible. Therefore, the most me memorable, memorable metaphor for God is likely that of a shepherd. Other passages support this. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11 says, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The shepherding imagery is also used to describe the leadership for God's people. We know that God's greatest leaders, Moses and David, were shepherds. We see how important the role of a shepherd, uh, the role of a shepherd leader was God, among God's people when we hear God speak about those who failed in their shepherding responsibilities. And the Bible actually says a lot about those shepherds who failed in their, their role to lead. Uh, Jeremiah 23 is one such example. Jeremiah 23 verses 1 and 2, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 4 is a Ezekiel chapter 34 is maybe a cornerstone chapter in our Bible about Israel's deficient shepherding leadership. Ezekiel 34 says a lot about that. And in that chapter, the Lord speaks against the shepherds of Israel. He not only says that he plans to judge these false shepherds, but he promises that in the future, he will set up over them. This is Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, that God will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, Will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. What we should know about that verse, those verses, is that it's written some 800 years after David. So Ezekiel is not talking about David, he's talking about someone else. The, the man that the Lord is going to set up for a shepherd for his people is, of course, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who Ezekiel is talking about. And it's that shepherd that we're going to talk about this morning in John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, Jesus will use the metaphor of a shepherd to distinguish his ministry from the false shepherds who failed in their duty. In effect, Jesus argues in John 10 that he is the rightful caretaker of the sheep. He is the rightful caretaker of the sheep, and as their rightful caretaker, as our rightful caretaker, he is the primary pathway, he is the preeminent provider, and he is the premier protector of the sheep. 
All of this, we of course will discover, we'll start to discover this week and we'll discover in the weeks that follow. This morning, we're gonna just look at John chapter 10, verses one through 10. And so at this time, if you would please stand, we'll go ahead and read that passage together. John 10, verses one through 10. Jesus begins with another solemn statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. The voice of strangers, excuse me. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And the thief comes only to steal. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The message of this message this morning is simply the story of the shepherd. That's the title of the message. And I believe the central message of this text, really the central message of basically John chapter 10 is this. The story of the shepherd teaches us that Jesus is the rightful caretaker of the sheep that we're going to see, begin to see this morning. Now, while this central message is clear, even you might say a simple message, it is a simple message, there, there are definitely difficulties in this passage uh, that, that make the passage not so simple. While Jesus is the door, as we just read in verses 7 and 9, well, later in the passage, as we'll see next week, Jesus also says that he is the good shepherd in verses 11 and 14. So Jesus is the door, Jesus is the good, good shepherd, well, which is it? Throughout the passage, the meaning of the shepherd imagery is not always the same. In our passage this morning, the shepherd is contrasted with thieves. But later, in verse 12, the shepherd is contrasted with hired men. Throughout the passage, the meaning of the sheep is somewhat varied. Who exactly are the sheep that Jesus is talking about? Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Is it the church that he's talking about? On the whole, the passage is far from straightforward, as there are literal and symbolic elements that are interwoven. Which parts of this are we to take literally, and which parts are we to take metaphorically? And probably one of the biggest challenges we have in this passage, that is in interpreting it, is to determine the genre of the first five verses, this story of the shepherd. We don't talk a lot about genre, at least we don't talk a lot about it from the front here. I don't say much about uh, biblical genre, but it is an important thing to consider when we read our Bibles. It's an important part of understanding and interpreting the Bible. Typically, we move from one genre 
uh, to another in, in our lives. In the course of a day, we might read an op-ed article in a newspaper, we might listen to a chapter in a book, and we might sing along to our favorite Beatles song. In all cases, we're moving from one genre to the next, and we don't think much about it. You've likely heard of a parable. Well, that is one popular genre that's found in the Bible. A parable is simply a true-to-life story that, well, illustrates a truth. The word parable is a Greek word that simply means to throw beside. So the idea in a parable is that the story is thrown alongside some kind of truth. That's what a parable is doing when Jesus tells parables. And Jesus, as we know, he was the master of the parable. Between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, there are some 30 parables that are recorded of Jesus. The parable of the sower in Matthew 13 is probably the most popular, or in Luke 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son. Both of those parables are very, very popular. We could probably, almost each of us could probably recite those parables from heart. The question at hand in our passage this morning, uh, as it relates to the story of the shepherd in John 10, is this a parable? What exactly is it? What kind of genre is this story? Well, if it is a parable, it's the only parable that we find in the Gospel of John. Because, as I just said, Matthew and Luke give us a lot of parables, but John actually doesn't give us any parables. There are no parables in the Gospel of John. For all the signs and sayings that Jesus gives us here, John gives us of Jesus, parables are nowhere to be found. That is, unless, of course, this is a parable. There is a little bit of a clue in verse 6. Maybe you caught that. It says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. The word figure of speech there is a very similar word to the word parable, although it isn't the word parable, which is why translators don't typically translate that verse parable. They say figure of speech. Paromia is the word, and so you can see it kind of sounds like parable, but it's not quite the word parable. It's a little different. Something very important when in something to important to remember when interpreting a parable is to remember that a parable is not an allegory. Those are two different genres, parable and an allegory, two different things. A parable teaches one spiritual truth, and to hunt for the meaning or a meaning in every detail of that parable is to turn it into an allegory. And we wouldn't want to do that. That's not how you interpret parables. A well-known example of turning a parable into an allegory is Augustine's interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. In fact, it's somewhat funny if you read how he interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan. Augustine believed the man who fell into the hands of robbers was Adam, Jerusalem was heaven, and Jericho signifies man's mortality. The robbers were the devil, and his angels were those who stripped Adam of his immortality. In beating Adam, they persuaded him to sin. The priests represented the law, and the Levites represented the prophets. The good Samaritan is Christ, who, in bandaging the man's wounds, seeks to restrain sin. The oil is hope, and the wine is a fervent spirit. The man's donkey is Jesus' incarnation, and the man being placed on the donkey pictures the belief in the incarnation. The inn is the church. The next day pictures the resurrection. And, of course, the innkeeper is no, none other than the Apostle Paul. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. 
It should be obvious that such an interpretation is really absurd. There's nothing in the text that would signify or, or teach us or show us, demonstrate that, that those, each of those elements is represented as he has as done, which is a popular way of interpreting the Bible in ages past. That being said, kind of playing fun with the idea of an allegory, allegories are found in the Bible. They are in the Bible. An allegory is a story where the parts or the elements of that story point symbolically to spiritual reality. Pilgrim's Progress, it's not the Bible, but Pilgrim's Progress is probably the most famous uh, allegory that's out there. If a parable has one major point of comparison, well, an allegory might have several points of comparison. Paul uses an allegory in Galatians chapter 4, and he contrasts the new and the old covenant with Sarah and Hagar. You might even say that the, the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is a kind of parable where the, the soldier's armor represent different spiritual realities, sort of the spirit, uh, the, the helmet of salvation, uh, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. Those are kind of allegorical interpretations. So, is the story of the shepherd in John 10 a parable or an allegory? What do you think? Well, <laughs> you seem confused, undecided. I think that this story is an allegory. It is not a parable. It is an allegory. The ex uh, number one, the exact word parable is not used to describe the story. As I've demonstrated, it's not a parable. It doesn't say that. Paramaya is different. It's a figure of speech. Number two, John records no other parables. It's not his habit to write parables or to record these parables. And so if it is, in fact, a parable, it's the only one that is in the book. And number three, most significantly, well, Jesus explains the story using an analogy. So it is an allegory. Jesus says he is the door. Verses 7 and 9. He, is, he says he is the shepherd, verses 11 and 14. There are other elements that are clear, although they're not fully explained, but they're clear. We can see them. The thieves and the robbers who attempt to steal the sheep. Although not explicitly identified, they are said to have came before me, Jesus says in verse 8. And these are the false religious leaders of the day. And the context would even support that that's the meaning of those thieves and robbers. Now, although the sheep are not explicitly identified, it's clear these are believers. As Jesus said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we would interpret those sheep as those believers because Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, while there are elements of the story that do seem clear, there are other elements that are not so clear. For example, the gatekeeper in verse 3, the stranger in verse 5, the hired hand in verse 11, and the wolf in verse 12. None of these are explicitly explained. We don't exactly know who or what they are. Now, while the story of the shepherd may be an allegory, that doesn't mean that every element in the story needs to have some symbolic meaning. So just because we call it an allegory, it doesn't mean, again, that we have to attribute some spiritual reality to every single element like Augustine did with the Good Samaritan. We don't have to do that. We can hold ourselves back, we can control ourselves, and we can only attach spiritual realities or spiritual meanings to those parts of the story that 
it's clear, it's explicit that that's what they mean as the door and the shepherd is represented and explained to mean or point to Christ. So as we move forward, we're going to limit our allegorical interpretation to the points of comparison that are explained or specifically interpreted in the passage. It's my hope, of course, that this explanation will help us to become better students of the Bible and will give us a better understanding of this most wonderful passage of Scripture. So then, as I've said, the story of the shepherd teaches us that Jesus is the rightful caretaker of the sheep. Well, let's see why this is true. The first thing we have to consider is the context of the story. The context of the story. Now, here I don't mean the context of the the story of the shepherd. I mean the greater context that this story and this chapter is found in. The way it connects, the way John chapter 9 and John chapter 10 connect. What is the context of this story? Well, there's no introduction to this story. It's not that we read and Jesus was out in the fields walking with his disciples and we would think that this is to be set apart from what just happened in John 9. And so what we want to do is, we, however we interpret and read this passage of Scripture, we want to keep it very close to John 9. We want to keep it very close to the healing of the blind man, which is what we've been studying for the past three weeks. The opening words indicate... The, the solemn statement also indicates that Jesus wants us to keep it very close to John chapter 9. Whenever we read this kind of statement, truly, truly, I say to you, it's always connected to something else that Jesus is doing. In John chapter 1, verse 51, when he calls his disciples, he calls his disciples, and then we have a solemn statement. In John chapter 5, verse 19, when he heals the paralyzed man, he heals the paralyzed man, and then we have a solemn statement, truly, truly, I say to you. When he feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verse 26, again, you have a solemn statement connected to the feeding of the 5,000. In John 8, verse 34, when he says, I am the light of the world, and before he heals the blind man, we have a solemn statement. And then here we have, after the the healing of the blind man, another solemn statement. Finally, we look over at verse 21, another factor that connects this section to the previous chapter is verse 21 After Jesus goes on and and talks about being the door and the good shepherd, there's a division that arises with the Pharisees, and it says, others said, these are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So even in, in this division that comes after Jesus gives this long discourse, they're still thinking about the fact that he healed the blind man. So it just kind of bookends the entire section. So, therefore, the story of the shepherd, the context, should be kept in close connection with the healing of the blind man. Recall, therefore, recall, recall how the Pharisees treated that man. You remember Luke 9, verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And what did they do? They cast him out. They, they excommunicated him. For what? Here's a man blind from birth that was healed by Jesus. They asked him what happened, and all he did was suggest that maybe a guy who could do that, maybe he's from God. Because nowhere in the history of the world has it ever been recorded that a man blind from birth was healed. 
So just maybe he was from God. And what happens? This is the response that they give. You were born in utter sin. You're going to teach us? We're supposed to have the answers. And so they excommunicated. They removed him. They cut him off from the life of Israel, from the synagogue, from buying and selling goods, would have, would have included. Even in his death, there would have been no formal funeral for this man, all because he suggested that maybe the man who healed me is from God. And so, when you think about this parable, excuse me, this allegory, when you think about the story of the shepherd, we have to keep in mind that context. Jesus, that this man had just been ex- excommunicated by these false shepherds, false shepherds. And so let's look then at the story of the shepherd in verses one through six. Let's look at this story. The the shepherding imagery would have, of course, been very familiar to those listening to, to Jesus and to John's immediate audience. In the ancient world, kings and gods alike were described as shepherds, and so this language would have struck a chord. It's kind of like talking about farming in Bakersfield or the beach in SoCal. You know, th- these are the things that we understand, we live around. And so shepherding would have really struck a chord with this audience. We see in verse 1 this word sheepfold. This isn't a word that we use often in our uh, language, in our vernacular. A uh, sheepfold is uh, simply a pen or a courtyard where the sheep were kept. In Jesus' day, sheep were kept in a walled enclosure that would provide protection from predators. In the story, the sheepfold has a doorway, of course. A doorway is significant because it's what seems to validate who the rightful shepherd is. There's a doorkeeper there, and that doorkeeper opens the door for that rightful shepherd. In contrast to the rightful shepherd, there are those who bypass the door, and they do what? They climb over the wall, right? They don't go through the door. They climb over the wall, and these are described as thieves and robbers. Verse 1, he who does not enter the sheepfold, the pen, the courtyard, by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Now, in our language, the, the word thief and robber are basically synonymous. They speak to the same thing, but in the Greek, they are two different words, and they have a bit of a nuance to them. Each is a little bit different. You think about the word thief focuses on the the covert nature of their entrance. They didn't go through the doorway. They climbed over the wall. And the word robber really focuses on the violence that would ensue. These men would climb over, and there would be violence that would happen inside as they take hold of the sheep. In other places, Judas is called a thief, and Barabbas is called a robber. You remember Barabbas is that man that Pilate suggested be given over to the Jews in exchange for Jesus. He is called a robber. Jesus was treated like a robber, it says in Matthew 26, 55, and he, of course, was crucified with robbers on each side, Matthew 27, 38. If you like, you may think of these thieves and robbers as rustlers who round up animals and steal them. They're a kind of rustler. That's what they are. And of course, the shepherd, Jesus, well, he is no rustler. His method is not one of violence or force, but his method is one of careful guidance. 
Not only do we see that the door, doorkeeper opens the door to the shepherd, but we see that the sheep in the pen, they follow him because they know the shepherd's voice. Verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. The idea is one of familiarity. They're familiar with their shepherd. They know their shepherd. The old travel writer H.V. Morton shared an account. He says, quote, Early in the morning I saw an extraordinary sight not far from Bethlehem. Two shepherds had evidently spent the night with their flocks in a cave. The sheep were all mixed together, and the time had come for the shepherd to go in different directions, the shepherds to go in different directions. One of the shepherds stood some distance from the sheep and began to call. First one, then another, then four or five animals ran towards him, and so on until he had counted his whole flock. So you have this picture of a, of a, of a place where mixed sheep are in, are in this pen or this courtyard, and as the shepherd calls their voice, his sheep come out. They're distinguished because they're familiar with the shepherd. His sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, and they respond. There's even evidence that Palestinian shepherds gave nicknames to their sheep. I imagine that's so because I give a name to everything. Don't you? Could you imagine having an animal that you didn't put a name to? You can't. We, we just do that. It's natural. And so they would do the same thing. They would have names for their sheep. That's what we see here. There's an intimacy found between the sheep and the shepherd. Such intimacy, of course, should not be confused with timidity or weakness. Shepherd was not a timid or weak person. A shepherding required dedication. It required courage. It required vigilance. Nowadays, I think we, th we think of the shepherd in terms of tender care and concern for the flock. It seems to be the focus when we talk about shepherding, but that's not really the focus when you think about antiquity. We, we shouldn't overlook other associations with the term. The shepherd was the absolute ruler of the flock. He was an autocrat. He was in charge. Revelation 2.27, it says that Jesus will shepherd them, this is to the church in Thyatira, will shepherd them with a rod of iron. Well, when you think about a rod of iron, you think of a scepter. You think of the, the tool, the implement of a king. So that is more of the biblical picture of a shepherd. It's a ruler. Quoting Micah 5.2, Matthew 2.6 says that from Bethlehem shall call a ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. Therefore, in biblical language, a shepherd is really a ruler. We get the New Testament idea of overseer, a leader. That's what a shepherd is. Of course, it includes the idea of tender care as well. As their ruler, it's no wonder we read that the shepherd leads them out. He leads them out. The role and function between the sheep and the shepherd is very clear. He hears their voice. They follow him. He leads them. And we know that sheep are in absolute need of a shepherd. The Associated Press covered a story from Aksum, Turkey, where one sheep wandered off a cliff, a cliff. One sheep wandered off a cliff, then another, and then another. A total of 1,500 sheep followed off the same cliff. The report said, quote, 
in the end, 450 dead animals lay on top of one another in a billowy white pile. Those who jumped later were saved as the pile got higher and the fall more cushioned. The dead sheep became a pillow and saved the other ones as they kept tumbling off this cliff. This was in Turkey. There's nothing we can do. They're all wasted, said a member of one of the families whose sheep were grazing together in the herd. Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, he describes what happens when a sheep is what is called cast down. You can imagine this. It's when a, when a sheep falls over on its side and its legs are sticking out. Of course, it's fat and happy, and it can't touch the ground, and, and it's frightened because it doesn't know where to, where to go, and it literally rolls on its back, and it's stuck there. It's what he calls being cast down. And so had a shepherd not come and, and tip him over, he would die. There's likely no other animal that needs a strong leader more than a sheep. Sheep are utterly helpless. You might say that among all the animals, they came out on the short end. They have a limited intelligence. They find it very difficult to find food. They will follow paths that lead them into desolate places. They wander aimlessly into danger. Shepherds speak of their timidity and their stubborn nature. They're often frightened by ridiculous things, and yet, at times, absolutely nothing will move them. They're defenseless. One professor said the existence of sheep, of course, tongue-in-cheek, is the best evidence against the theory of evolution. There's no way that sheep could have survived. I guess that's an argument against survival of the fittest. As I've said, sheep are in desperate need of a dedicated, courageous, and vigilant shepherd. I'm so thankful that we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4 tells us something about the style of leadership of our Savior. When he, was brought, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He will lead them. And they will follow. In the West, we're more likely familiar with the idea of driving animals, where we push them from the back. But that's not the, the picture here. That's not the ancient picture of the way that a shepherd leads his sheep. He goes out before them. He calls them by name, and they follow him. It's completely different from that idea of driving animals. And they do so because they know the sheep know his voice. So they follow Israel's exodus is portrayed this way in terms of a flock being led by its shepherd. Psalm 77, 20. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You remember during that time, the Shekinah glory of God was you know, like a pillar of smoke come down on the tabernacle. And when that glory moved, the people followed it. And so God led them around and they followed their shepherd. Psalm 78, 52, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. It's, preci it's precisely because the sheep have an intimate relationship with the shepherd that we read in verse five, a stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. It's a strong negative in the Greek. They will never, never Follow the voice of a stranger, so the text says. Apparently, this has been documented, documented as 
strangers, even when dressed in shepherd's clothing and attempting to imitate the call of the shepherd, those sheep will run away. They can't be duped. The sheep know their shepherd's voice, and they do not positively respond to the voice of a shepherd. Now, before Jesus explains the story, again, we've seen this already in my introduction. I highlighted it. We've seen that this story is a figure of speech. Verse 6, this figure of speech, Paromaya, Jesus used with them, but they, those who are with him, probably the Pharisees, the religious leaders that he's speaking among, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, if you keep in fact keep the fact or keep in mind that this is connected to John chapter 9, this is another statement that confirms the blindness of the Pharisees. In fact, it confirms that they were utterly blind. They claimed to be able to see. Remember verse 41 of chapter 9. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but that you say we see, but that you claim to see, he says, your guilt remains. Then he goes in and he tells a story. And the fact that they heard the story and they couldn't understand it only confirms the fact that they weren't just blind, but they were utterly blind. Now, I told you that this story teaches us that Jesus is the rightful caretaker of the sheep. I think you can probably already see that. You probably have eyes to see. It's pretty simple to see. It's there in front of us. We see the truth from the story And we don't have to draw an analogy from every detail to to find the meaning in this story. That being said, Jesus does draw out some analogies that we want to cover for the rest of this morning and then in the weeks to follow. And there's three that I see here that I'd like to highlight. We'll deal with the first one this morning. But as the rightful caretaker, the good shepherd is the pathway to God. Verses 7 through 10 The good shepherd is the provider of God in verses 11 through 18, and the good shepherd is the protector for God in verses 27 through 30. This morning we'll look at the first in verses 7 through 10. The good shepherd is the pathway to God. The good shepherd is the pathway to God. The word inclusive, you've probably heard that word, it's a a buzzword in our day. The word simply means that everyone is included. Organizations, businesses, churches even have inclusive policies where they spell out how they will provide equal access of opportunities and resources for people. While it might be popular to be inclusive in our culture, most religions are not inclusive. Most religions are exclusive. If you don't think so, you can share your faith with a Hindu or a Jew or a Muslim, and see if they think their religion is exclusive. And they do. And Christianity is no different. Christianity is an exclusivist religion. As Christians, we believe, number one, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. That's what the Bible teaches. We believe, number two, that explicit faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for salvation. Well, those things make Christianity an exclusivist religion. Biblical Christianity rejects the idea that a person can be saved outside of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only the way, 
but he is the only way. And here we see that demonstrated in the fact that Jesus says that he is the door. Jesus is the door. Jesus actually says that twice in this passage. In verse 7, he says, I am the door of the sheep. And then in verse 9, he simply says, I am the door. Well, first off, Jesus is not just any door. He doesn't use an indefinite article, a door, but he uses the definitive article. Jesus is the door. He is the only door. There is something, of course, exclusive about just the metaphor itself. If there's only one door, well, that's the only access point by which, through which we might enter into a room. Jesus does say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, that's also an exclusivist statement. The door, however, I think maybe the characteristics of it do convey even this exclusive nature of our faith, maybe even a, in a stronger way, you might say, where you could con, uh, conceive of multiple ways to achieve the same goal. You can't achieve of any other way to get into the room if there's only one door. It is the only access point to salvation. There's only one door. In the story of the shepherd, the sheepfold had just one door. Remember, we're building on that story. We're using analogy there's only one access point through which the sheep move from pen to pasture. When Jesus says, I am the door, he is saying, I am the exclusive mediator of salvation. That's what he's saying. Verse 8 gives us the contrast again between the shepherd and the thieves and the robbers. As the story was told, these didn't come through the door. They climbed in another way. Now, when Jesus says in verse 8, all who came before me, I don't think that's a, a, an absolute statement that indicts all the leaders that came before him. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's not indicting Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. He's not doing that here to that point. And the fact that Jesus, I think, is speaking of the, the hierarchy or the rulers of his day, he does use the present tense there. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, those right now. These are the ones that I'm talking about. They are the thieves and the robbers. Jesus condemns the religious leaders of his day because they failed to come through Christ. They failed to see that he was the door. They sought to, to give life to others, yet they were not willing to enter life through Christ. They therefore stood condemned. You may have heard about how shepherds would lay across the door of the sheepfold. Maybe you've heard that before in similar teachings. The Old Testament scholar George Adam Smith tells a story about a time he came upon some shepherds somewhere in the east. The shepherd showed George the sheepfold and he asked, this is where they go at night? He asked the shepherd. Yes, said the shepherd. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. But there is no door, said George. I am the door said the shepherd. George said, he was not a Christian man. He, he was not speaking in the language of the New Testament. He was speaking from the Arab sh shepherd's standpoint. standpoint. George asked the shepherd, what do you mean by the door? And the shepherd said, when the light has gone and all the sheep are inside, I lay in the open space and no sheep ever goes out but across my body and no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. 
Again, a picture that would have been very common to those listening to this story of the shepherd. Verses 9 and 10, we see what comes of those who access the sheepfold through Jesus. Who access the sheepfold through the door. Verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Here we have a comprehensive picture of blessing. That's what's being described here. The sheep have found a safe pasture. They have free and secure movement and all their needs are being met. Psalm 23, 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Once again, Jesus contrasts such safety and with the false shepherds of his day. In verse 10, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's like stacking these terms on one another to communicate the danger, the devastating effects of these false shepherds. They kill, they steal, they destroy. Now we might take some pleasure in Jesus' rebuke of these shepherds, but overall it's really a sorrowful picture. They had no shepherd to lead them. There was no door in their ministry These false shepherds rejected Christ. Matthew 15, 14 says, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So these religious leaders were falling into the pit and so were those who followed them. It's a sorrowful picture. J.C. Ryle said, if you would know the value of a man's ministry, we must never fail to ask, where is the lamb? Where is the door? Does he bring forward Christ and give him his rightful place? It's a kind of measurement for a man's shepherding ability. Does he know the door? Finally, Jesus says in verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That they may have life and have it abundantly. Literally, it's something like have life and have abundance abundantly. He's under, underscoring that word, to have an abundant life. For sheep, this means they are fat, they are contented, they're flourishing, they're not terrorized by predators. For us, it's likely a picture of eternal life, ultimately. That's what it looks like to have the abundant life in the end. That being said, I think Jesus does give a full life here and now, I think you believe that. I think you know that to be true. Psalm 23, 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. My cup overflows. That's that picture of an abundant life. Martin says, abundance of life points to a depth of living now and a length of living in eternity. It is not only life as good as it can be, but also life beyond what we can imagine. Of course, an abundant life is not one that is without pain. Rather, it is one that uses pain, God uses in our life, for our good. We've talked a lot about that. 
when we center our lives on Christ, when we're not tossed to and fro by this life, rather, we're taken into the calm center of the storm. The world might be spinning around us, but there's a sense in which we're in the center. We have an abundant life. Because we know who's in control. What did Tom teach us this morning? What did Ron teach us this morning? It's true. It's no secret. Many people suppose that an abundant life means an abundance of things. Well, we know that money can buy a pasture, but money cannot buy satisfaction. You know that. Kent Hughes writes. Scripture portrays the great shepherd leading his sheep into green pastures beside still waters, pursuing the strays, keeping them away from the poisonous plants, plants, taking them to good water, making sure they have life and abundance, providing everything for their health. And what is the qualification for such things? Is it to be a brilliant sheep, he asks? Is it to be a beautiful sheep? Is it to be the smartest sheep? It's just to be a sheep that follows the shepherd wherever he leads, knowing that the shepherd knows what is best for the sheep. There's a story of a Roman soldier who came to Julius Caesar and he requested permission to commit suicide. The man was miserable. He had no vitality. And Caesar looked at him and he said, Man, were you ever really alive? When we try and we live our own lives, life is dull and disheartening. But when we walk with Jesus, when we see his presence in our lives, there comes a new kind of vitality, an abundant life in the words of Jesus. It's only then, it's only when we live with Christ that life becomes really worth living. This is why Jesus says he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. That's the life he's talking about. That's the true life. Outside of him, it's not a life. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's our author. He's our maker. If we're not following after him, we don't know what our purpose is. As I say sometimes, The Bible gives us, Jesus gives us the answers to life's biggest questions. Why are we here? What's the purpose of all this? Well, only when we follow Jesus can we have answers, true answers, the real answers. I want to close by looking at that little phrase from verse 9 again. It says, Jesus says that if we enter through him, we'll go in and come out, or we'll go in and out. The idea is to come out. We'll go in and out. This is an idiomatic way of describing a life that is absolutely safe and secure. You can do a word study on that little phrase, and it shows up in a number of places in the Bible. Numbers 27.7, when Moses was finishing his ministry and Joseph was going to take take over, it says, Numbers 27.7, Joseph shall go out before them and come in before them who shall lead them out and bring them in, and the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. This little idiom is used to describe God's leadership. 
Good leadership, not, not false shepherds, but a leader like Joseph, who was himself a picture of Savior. Deuteronomy 28.6 speaks this way of the man who is obedient to God. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. It's the same idea. If we're obedient to the Lord, then we're safe and we're secure. We're, we're living an abundant life. The psalmist rejoices in the certainty that God will keep him absolutely safe and secure. Psalm 121.8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Whether it's God's godly leadership, whether it's the, the joy of, of obedience, whether it's the knowledge that God will keep us and the fact that we rejoice in that fact, all this is, is captured with this little phrase that we'll go in and we'll come out and we'll find pasture. It's a fitting picture. When we discover that through Jesus Christ, what God is like, he is like this, he is like Jesus, when we discover that, a new sense of safety and security enters into our life, into our life. In which case, the story of the shepherd convinces us, as I've said, that Jesus is the rightful caretaker of the sheep. If you've not put your life in the hands of this great shepherd, I encourage you to consider doing so. I encourage you to walk through the door, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And John 10, 9 will be true for you. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and, f and out and find pasture. Amen.